The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 18th chapter. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the Gospel of the Lord. We've talked before about how the Bible is full of two types of examples, good examples and bad examples for the Christian life. You can always find both in plenty and sometimes in the Old Testament it seems like there's more bad examples than good especially with the kings of Judah and Israel. There are a few exceptions for those kings after the kingdom split in two, but it seems to be the case, it definitely is the case, in fact, that most of the kings were bad. They did wicked things in the sight of the Lord, and they led Israel and Judah into sin. One of the worst of those kings was a fellow named Manasseh. And if any of you ever have a kid that comes and he said, we had a baby boy and we looked on this baby list of names and we're going to name him Manasseh. It's in the Bible. I'm going to say, no, you're not. Change it. Because Manasseh is a bad dude. Even in spite of what I'm about to tell you, because most people remember him for what I'm about to describe. He was the son of Hezekiah and Hezekiah was actually one of the good kings. He rid Israel, or rid Judah, of many of the idols that had been set up and the false gods that they had worshipped. But even though he was a good king, sometimes people can be very good at their job, but maybe not so good in the home, raising their own children. Because after Manasseh, his son, came to power, he undid all the good work that his father Hezekiah had done. He rebuilt the idols and the altars. He even set up altars to the host of heaven, it says, inside of the actual temple of God, things he should not have done. He consulted mediums and necromancers, necromancers, witchcraft, in essence. King of Judah, can you imagine? Well, certainly he did. And that's not even the worst of it. What did he do? But he also even, it says, in 1 Kings, that he took, in 2 Kings, he took his sons and sacrificed them to the demon Moloch. Not a great king. Not a great thing to be known for. At the outset of the description of him in 2 Kings, 
it usually has this. It gives the name of the guy and the son and when he began to reign. And then it gives a summary. It said, he did much evil. In fact, it adds this. That the others don't add. He did more evil during his reign than all of the wicked Canaanites that Israel wiped out or were supposed to wipe out before they came into the land. And it says, because he did all of this, there was the promise that Jerusalem itself would be wiped out because he was such a bad king. 2 Kings 21, where it tells us about Manasseh, has a very short conclusion, and it also matches the template for the rest of the kings, each one in turn. It says, now the rest of the acts of King Manasseh, are, not they, are they not recorded in such and such book? And then it says, and he slept with his fathers, was buried, and his son reigned in his place. Now, there's not much, like I said, that's unique about Manasseh in some regard. Bad kings were a dime a dozen. But there is one notable thing that really sticks out about this bad king, and that is the parallel account of what happened during his reign that you read about in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. See, all of these kings have this parallel account, by the way. First and Second Kings is kind of paralleled by First and Second Chronicles, and it's like the Gospels. Details that you don't get somewhere. In one of them, you might get in the other one. And 2 Chronicles fills it in. During Manasseh's reign, it says he was taken captive into Babylon, a very bad city that we know about. And while he was there, it has this key fact that for whatever reason is left out of 2 Kings 21. Wicked, evil, awful, terrible, King Manasseh repented of all that he did. It says, in summary, that he humbled himself he entreated the Lord, and the Lord relented from the heavy hand that he had against Manasseh there in captivity in Babylon. And he went back, of course, to Jerusalem, to Judah, and though, of course, the idolatry still happened that he had set up, he led the people astray, they're not just going to turn on a dime. And yes, though Judah was still wiped out later by the Babylonians, just as the Lord had promised, here's this key point. Manasseh, when he died, died in the faith. This man who led Israel into idolatry, who set up false gods and idols and temples, who killed his own son, sacrificing them to a demon, was what Luther would call, and us too, at the end of his life, a Christian, a believer. Sometimes... I have encountered, when talking to people about Christianity, I've certainly heard secondhand stories, there is this indignant attitude that people have, non-Christians have, about the concept of grace, forgiveness, being shown to an exceptionally wicked person. That somebody who does horrendous things in their life could be forgiven by God, that does not sit well with some people. My father-in-law, John, worked for Ford Motor Com Company for about 40 years, and he had stories like this that I learned over the years that Allison and I have been married. He worked in a shop with a bunch of other guys, and as you do, you talk about stuff. You talk about everything, from politics to culture to, of course, religion. John's been a Christian his whole life, believes the gospel, trusts in his Lord, and believes that he is sinner like all the rest of us, have forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the rest of the guys in the shop knew this, and there was one fellow who he had a really good friendship with, or good working relationship at least. This guy actually saved his life 
1962 or 63. I'll probably tell that story sometime. But Howard was his name, was arguing with John about Christianity at its core. He just couldn't accept the fact that somebody who lived a long, terrible life, and even somebody who did heinous things, rape and murder were the example he used in his hypothetical, how that person could live that way and then say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and God would forgive him, and he would die and go to heaven. I think his variation, or the line that he said, was something along the lines of, I just can't believe in a God like that who wouldn't give those people what they had coming to them. Now, we're Christians here. We know what we believe. But I think if we're honest, we can kind of understand Howard's thinking, his objection. I think I really can. I bet some of you can too. Some things are very heinous, things that you especially can do to other human beings. And they deserve physical death. Capital punishment is in the Bible for a reason. They also deserve, certainly, eternal death. And that much is certainly true. But the thing is, it's not all that is true, is it? We know the full story, and it is simply this, that everybody, regardless of how righteous a life they have lived civically, that is, they've never done heinous things, everybody, still in the end, does not deserve to go to heaven, but deserves eternal separation from God in hell. And there are some sins... There are certainly some crimes that are indeed terrible, exceptionally terrible. I don't need to give you examples. Some are worse than others in both kinds of punishments even. Okay, So we do know from the Bible that there are layers of hell. There are degrees of suffering in hell. So when you ever heard the phrase, there's a special place in hell for blank? The Bible kind of does seem to suggest that. Actually, it says this much. The fundamental truth does remain that all sin, even the little ones, are finally themselves rebellion against our maker and our God. The little ones that we kind of excuse in ourselves, those are just as much as an affront to the Lord who created us as heinous crimes like murder and so forth. You see, yes, to kill a person or even to harm him in his body, or to hate him in your heart, is to break the commandment about murder. To commit adultery in the actual physical act, or, Jesus says, to even lust after someone who is not given to you as your spouse, is to break the commandment of the sanctity of marriage. To libel a person such to the extent that they lose their good reputation and maybe even their business and home, or even to gossip about them idly is to break the commandment about upholding a person's good name and reputation. And of course, although, yes, these sins, all of them sins, do have varying effects and varying degrees of consequences and social consequences, they are all to God the same. They are all sin. And sin, both big and small, deserves his temporal wrath an eternal punishment, as we learn in Luther's Christians and Questions in preparation for communion. It's right in the hymnal if you want to know the page number from me. What this is to say is that though 
You, here in this room, are not an actual murderer. You've never killed somebody you weren't supposed to kill or taken a life you were not given according to your office the authority to take. Though you might not be an adulterer or a slanderer, you still, on your own accord, by yourself, do not deserve heaven. Or to put it better, more convoluted but better for the point, you don't deserve not to go to hell. God is God, and you are his creature. You are his creation. His will, his rule for you, that's the measure, and it's pure and good, and guess what? You haven't kept it. Not to the extent that he would look at you and say, of yourself, you are righteous and welcome into heaven on your own. You, along with everybody else, will, as Paul says in the epistle, stand before the judgment throne, and you, good as you are compared to some people in this world, you're going to need his mercy and grace on that day. That's a terribly important thing for Christians to remember. And that's what Jesus, in part, wants to, us to keep in mind when he tells us this parable from Matthew today. Just as the man in the parable would not pay forward what he so desperately wanted, needed, and yeah, at the beginning, received from the master, you should not, like he does, hold others to a higher standard that you yourself have not met and are not meeting and will not meet. Or better said, don't give yourself a pass on the cosmic scales of justice just because your sins are not as destructive, as hurtful as other people's. Perhaps they aren't. I'm sure they aren't in a civic sense. But as far as God is concerned, on your own, by yourself, left to your own devices, you are, and I am, a damned sinner. But we are damned sinners who have been, re been redeemed by the blood of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, in his gracious work on the cross for us. We have a great need for and have received from that Jesus Christ pardon, forgiveness, and grace upon grace. Our sins, though they be relatively small, have still been covered up. God be praised for it. We have been shown mercy from him. So my imploring for you is, in your own turn and own place, show that mercy to others too. And if you catch wind of somebody who has not lived well in this life and has a lot of pain and suffering in his wake, if you catch wind that he has turned from it and turned to the same gracious Lord whose name that you hope for, pray for, and call upon, when you get wind of the mercy and the pardon that he has received, rejoice with him for he is sharing in the same gift that will be for your eternal benefit.